This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures, specializing in top quality birdwatching tours with experienced professional guides to over 100 destinations around the world. The American Birding Association is proud to join Rock Jumper to offer an ABA tour to Tanzania in 2018. Join us for hundreds of birds, iconic mammals, and amazing culture and scenery. For more information, see rockjumper.com or events.aba.org. Hello, welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I want to thank you, dear listener, right up top for listening, subscribing, supporting the podcast through your ABA membership or your donations. I really appreciate it. The ABA really appreciates it. But I, I got to say, folks, we could be doing better. And I say that because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just came out with a new figure on the numbers of wildlife watchers. Uh, with birders in there in the United States. We have all been dealing in in various ways with the old figure of 46-odd million, quote-unquote, birders in the country. It's sort of this, you know, I'm going to come out and say it, this sort of impossible standard that we birding organizations strive and and ultimately fail to reach. Well, we have a new standard to fail to reach. Fish and Wildlife estimates that there are 101 million people who engaged in wildlife-related activities in 2016. That includes birding, but also hunting, fishing, etc. The most interesting aspect of this survey was that the biggest increase was in the realm of observing, feeding, and photographing wildlife. A big chunk of that, I suppose, can be presumed to be birders, especially the estimated 16.3 million away-from-home observers, that being people that traveled more than a mile to observe wildlife, which we've always considered to be the ABA's bailiwick, as some people say. Very few people say that, probably. Mostly 18th century people. Wheelhouse. Wheelhouse may be better. That's really more of a 19th century term. And look, I, I don't know how to interpret these numbers. Frankly, I'm not sure anyone really does. Theoretically, a proportion of those watchers would be interested in birds, and specifically joining a bird organization like the ABA, uh, certainly more than the 1,500 and 2,000 people who listen to any one episode of this podcast. The question is, and, and continues to be, for any of us interested in promoting birding, promoting a conservation ethic, mobilizing in the face of something like the proposed Santa Ana border wall, or, or lobbying governments in the U.S. and Canada for bird-friendly policies, the question is, how do we get these people pulling in one direction and and maybe that's impossible in this fractured age but you know we should be able to mobilize more than we can now there's always a little bit of self-flagellation when it comes to these numbers and, and the whole argument of how many birders are there is one that will probably never be sufficiently answered but it is satisfying at least to see that this number has been increasing this year by 20 percent. that's pretty significant so even if the actual birder number is only a small portion of this 100 million strong community of wildlife watchers. It is growing along with it, and that's that's something to take away from all of this. Uh, what I mean to say is that, you know, if you know someone who is interested in birds and podcasts, direct them here, because it's sort of embarrassing that we're only reaching 0.00001% of these people. In today's commentary at the end of the show, I'll continue to rag a little bit on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service friendly, friendly way. We appreciate all the amazing work that they do, often on a shoestring budget. Uh, But I got to talk about the next duck stamp, guys. But first, 
Rock Jumper Birding's George Armistead joins me to talk about birding tours, what goes into them, tips you can apply to leading your own bird walks and all that jazz. He's a friend of the ABA. He's a former colleague, and I think you will enjoy it. Uh, All that after this week's jam-packed Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of September 2017. This was a very full period, and I apologize in advance if I miss anything. There was just so much going on on opposite sides of the continent, thanks to two major phenomena. One, a huge influx of Asian land birds to western Alaska, and the second, of course, Hurricane Irma, which was a really powerful storm that entrained many birds and pushed them all over the southeast. So we'll start with Alaska, and the biggest find there was an ABA first record, a thick-billed warbler at Gamble on St. Lawrence Island, which I will be honest and say was a species I had not heard of before this report. Uh, This bird breeds no closer to North America than Southeast Russia and Mongolia. So an unexpected find, this is one of the acrocephalid warblers. It's a group that was given full family status relatively recently. They're sort of long-bodied, long-tailed reed warblers. I says something about that week at Gamble that an ABA first was only one of many highlights. The checklist reads like something that would be more expected in Southeast Asia right now. Also on Gamble, a willow warbler, a chiffchaff, and a wood warbler. Fewer than 15 North American records for each of those philoscopus warblers. Multiple dusky warblers and multiple little buntings. A Siberian ruby throat, Siberian accenter, taiga flycatcher, Asian brown flycatcher, common house martin, all on gamble, all in, you know, seven to ten days. Really remarkable run. St. Paul, down in the Pribilofs, also had dusky warbler. There was also a red-flanked blue tail and a white-tailed eagle on the island. And on little St. George, there was a common house martin and a gray-streaked flycatcher. Moving down to the Aleutians, a common cuckoo was photographed on Unalaska and a good candidate for Kamchatka leaf warbler. That is a a recent split from Arctic warbler. It's occurred in the ABA area two or three times before. Was well photographed on Attic. We'll see how that one pans out. Um, So let's talk Irma. Uh, The storm carried a number of seabirds well inland. I have an Irma roundup at the ABA blog, link to that in the show notes. Most of the birds found were very good for their respective states, but I'll focus on the firsts here. Uh, Tennessee takes the prize for the most surprising Irma waifs, especially since Irma had lost a lot of energy by the time it got that far inland. Still, at a single lake in Hardin County, Tennessee, a black-capped petrel and a brown knotty were found in the wake of the storm. Crazy records. Uh, and so far as I can tell, the farthest inland for either of those species. Uh, feel free to correct me if I am wrong. Another first that was most likely Irma-related in American Flamingo was photographed by a boat captain in Charleston County, South Carolina. Given Irma's path through Florida, Cuba, some of the Bahamas, this was such a massive hurricane, it's absolutely plausible that that bird was riding the outer edges of the storm to end up uh, in South Carolina. On to California, where a Kermadec petrel was photographed around southeast Farallon Island off San Francisco. That is a first record for California and an ABA continental first record. Uh, The South Ocean breeding species has been recorded in Hawaii previously. Other firsts of note, a mass duck was discovered in Tillman County, southwest Oklahoma. That is another good ABA area bird and a first for Oklahoma. And for the District of Columbia, a Sabin's goal was showing well this past week. A first record for the district as actually one of many Sabin's goals all over the eastern half of the continent this week. That's probably an indirect result of Irma. This is a species that migrates from the Arctic over the continent to winter as a pelagic species in both oceans. The presence of Hurricane Irma probably forced some of them down onto 
lakes and large rivers all over. DC was a beneficiary of that. If you can believe it, for as long as this segment was, this was only part of the notable records for the last couple weeks. As I said, it was nuts. For all the records, check out the ABA blog every Friday and join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. There's more to being a bird tour leader than just finding birds. My guest today is George Armistead, a former colleague of mine at the ABA. He's now with Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Tours, our partner in an upcoming Tanzania safari in 2018. He's a proud Philadelphian, a longtime birder. He's led tours to all seven continents, and we're going to talk about that and all sort of the ins and outs of birding tours. Uh, George, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Wonderful to be here. Uh, wonderful to be talking to uh, a friend at ABA again. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, excited to uh, talk about travel and birds and, and everything else. Cool. We'll kind of start by talking about what goes into pulling off a successful birding tour uh, in some, you know, far-flung part of the world. Uh, when things are going well, when the birds are showing and the, you know, the logistics are kind of all mapped out, it looks like, you know, the most fun thing in the world. But there's uh, clearly a lot that goes into making that all happen in the background. So when you are when you're putting together a tour from you know from scratch or maybe something that you've done before, what are you doing to make sure that it all goes off without a hitch? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I think, uh, and as you say, I, for years a lot of my friends would see the my tour schedule and they they had nothing but envy really, and they didn't they don't think of it as work, and it is work, of course, as you guys know at, at ABA through events. I'd say there's really two key parts. There's the planning and there's the execution, and uh, the planning requires uh, a good team of staff, not usually just one person, but a handful of folks planning, not just uh, the route is key, uh, and the accommodations, the food. As, as Jeff Gordon has often said, you know, the birding part is pretty easy. It's the fact that folks got to go to the bathroom, they need some place to stay, and they need some place to eat. Uh, and sort of finding those places surrounding the birding can be a real challenge. So that usually requires not one person, but a couple folks. And then the next part is the guide. And the guide is really all important. You need someone that is a great birder, of course, but somebody that is really great with people and great with logistics. Um, so those are the two key elements, I would say. Yeah, I imagine you know, sometimes it feels like the um, the logistics part is almost more important than than the birding part because you know if the birds maybe aren't showing as well as you as you want you know you can write that off some birds are difficult to find that's just the way it is you can't see them all but if the logistics are not you know humming you know that can turn a potentially great trip and a great birding location into a into a disaster that's exactly right yes and uh yeah and that's you know everybody prepares as much as they can or at least they should you know you need the birds to do their part that's what i always say is like we'll do our part you know we put together the itinerary and, and be as prepared as possible. All, another you know, key aspect of guiding is you really have to be adaptable. You have to, when there's a bridge out, all of a sudden, you know, you got to be thinking, all right, well, how are we, what are we going to do instead? You know, or if there's a hotel, every now and then you show up at a hotel and they just don't have your reservations or have overbooked, you know, and everybody's familiar with how that can happen on flights as well. So, yeah, you have to be adaptable, not just as a guide, but uh, I think as a traveler in general. And so, yeah, there's there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. And, and if you travel enough, uh, you experience all of them. <laughs> Eventually they will. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, my, my own experience as a leader is you know, obviously far less than yours, of course. But, you know, I've always been sort of interested in this this idea of the, the participant versus the passenger. You know, you and I both have a fair amount of experience on out in the Gulf Stream, Brian Pattison seabirding trips. And, 
there's a real difference between the people who who come on the boat. They paid to be on the boat, but they will, you know, they're out on the deck. They're they're searching for birds. They're helping you look for stuff on the horizon. You've got you got 360 degrees. The birds can come from any direction at any time. It really helps to have a lot of eyes on that horizon. How do you encourage people to be, you know, participants rather than rather than passengers? Yeah, that is a uh, you're right. Those those are those are two sort of extremes that you get on trips, and there are, there are people in between, of course, too. I mean, I, I, I don't actually, I really try to let people, if people show up on a trip and they mostly are there for social reasons and the birding is secondary, I'm okay with that. I'm like, you know, you you, you paid your money for this experience and it should be your experience as well. Now, if you want to look for birds actively instead of passively, you will be helping not just your guide, but the whole group. But some folks, that's really just not their forte. That's not something they do or... It's just not how they relax and want to enjoy themselves. And thankfully, you know, as you say, so many of us uh, that do participate in these events, that is our sort of default way of being. We, we're sort of always on alert. We're looking for stuff moving in the brush or moving overhead, looking for movement and looking for flashes of color. Um, some folks, they like being surprised. You know, they like sort of looking through the scope, not realizing there's anything there and sort of having that, oh, wow moment. Yeah. I, I don't really, I try to let people have their own experience. Sometimes you'll see somebody that you see is a good spotter and just needs a little bit of focus maybe. And they can, you know, you see that they would actually enjoy their birding more if they were doing more active looking. Uh, and then sometimes I'll encourage folks to say, hey, you know, scan over there, look over here. Uh, I'm trying to find this. Don't look where I'm looking. Look over here, and that way we'll cover more ground. You know, that's. I do think that that is a good thing to do if you if you find the right person um, that has those kind of skills. And you know, one thing I often say is, if on a guide, you'll you'll look at a group sometimes, and you'll see the guide focused in one area, and everyone else will be looking in that area, and you haven't found the bird yet in this case. You know, and you're thinking it'd be better if people are just looking in every direction, including <laughs> straight up and straight down. You know. You know, I do try to encourage folks, you know, every, every now and then you'll turn around and realize the group is looking at the same patch of brush you are. And you're thinking, gosh, what are we missing? Right, um, right, right. So I, in, in certain instances, it becomes really important, actually, to try to get folks looking all over the place. Because, uh, as you know, certain birds are just super tough. Yeah. The nice thing is, is that those skills that you develop as a birder in your own patch, like you mentioned, the sort of noticing movement, noticing color, that, that stuff is universal. You know, even if you don't know the birds of a particular place if you're birding you know south america for the first time or panama for the first time you still are going to be able to find birds even if you don't necessarily identify them immediately yes and that's one of those things i always marvel at there, there are you're right they are universal wherever you go you use those skills and uh my non-birding friends will sometimes sort of marvel at that they're like how did like where where are you seeing this stuff you know like and i'm just like oh it's you know i've been trained since the age of nine to, <laughs> right, right. you know to pick up on this stuff but yeah, I mean, uh, you, you see it all the time. And I, the thing, one of the things I marvel at in the tropics, my first trips to Panama with all the excellent guides they have in the country of Panama, I remember being sort of flabbergasted at their ability to spot motionless sitting birds like, you know, puff birds, jacamars, trogans, stuff, all those things, those, you know, snazzy, cool looking birds that just sit forever and don't move. I didn't grow up looking for that as much. Like, you know, I think That's we were based in the East Coast and the Mid-Atlantic where we spent a lot of time looking for movement, you know, looking for hawks and falcons zipping overhead, looking for sparrows jumping out of the weeds. And, and we don't look here as much for sort of sit and wait birds, as they call them, you know. Uh, but every now and then, like, you know, I have never myself found a wintering solid owl like on a day roost. 
I, I'm, 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 I'm rather ashamed to admit that. Like I have <laughs> friends that are very good at that, but I have never managed to do it myself. I found some other owls that that's way. That's a tough bird. It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they like dense stuff, but like, I feel like that's sort of an example around here of that bird where you have to, you have to know how to look for it and whatever, whatever that is, I don't have it. <laughs> yeah. it's a good point. You've, you've gone to a ton of places. So where is your, the favorite place that you visit either as a, either as a birder or as a, as a tour leader? Yeah. Great question. And one that, as you can imagine, we get a lot in the bird tour business. I always say it's for me, picking a favorite place is like picking a favorite beer or a favorite song. There's so many good ones to choose from. How do you narrow it down? But what I can tell you is that I love open space. Unlike a lot of my colleagues, actually, who love tropical forest where, you know, biodiversity is at its highest, I tend to like biomass more. I tend to like area, high latitude areas, but also just open space in, in general. So, like, my favorite trips were Alaska, the subantarctic islands of New Zealand, high latitude spots where maybe the species diversity isn't so tremendous, but the biomass is, you know, you're seeing spectacles of birds, whether it's cliffs full of murres or islands full of penguins or just a, a spectacle of sooty shearwaters out at sea. You know, those are the kinds of things I like, but more tropical areas. I mean, I really love deserts too. Um, I love deserts, steppes, marshes, tundra, the ocean. You know, those are the areas I like to go most of all, wherever they happen to be. Um, so those would be sort of, that's sort of my short list of places I love to go. But I think like you, Nate, I, I, I love all forms of birding. Mm -hmm. There's pretty much nothing I don't want to see when it comes to birds. So, uh, so I like it all. You, you've been a leader for a long time. Uh, do you have any, any tips for those birders who are even just, you know, sort of leading walks for their, their local bird club? What's, what strategies do you have? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people hesitate to lead trips that are perfectly capable of leading bird walks, we're talking here. But just about, uh, I shouldn't say anyone, but many people are, that are capable of leading a bird walk seem to shy away from it, I think, because they think I'm not a good enough birder. But the, yeah, but the truth too. is, yeah, you know, really what you need, you, field skills are great and in some cases, you know, super helpful. But being a good host is, I would say, as important as being a good birder when it comes to leading you know, say a local bird walk or, you know, a group, uh, you know, in, in sort of a regional area where you already know the birds fairly well, being able to welcome people as they show up, you know, sort of prime them for what, what the day is going to be like, or the half day or the couple hours, whatever your field trip is say, Hey, you know, great to see everybody introduce yourself. People, it sounds basic, but people forget to do that a lot. I have forgotten to do that at times. And then you get, you know, an hour into the walk and people say, so who are you again? And you think, <laughs> yeah. geez, I, I didn't even introduce myself. <laughs> who is leading you this know? trip? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a key thing. And, and priming people so they know who's in charge. They know uh, what to expect. They have a sense of the way the day is going to work. Uh, this is when the next restroom stop is. This is when lunch is. Um, you know, we're going to walk for the next, you know, 90 minutes, but then we'll return to the vehicle. Uh, just giving people that information, you know what's going on, make sure they know what's going on and give them a sense of what to expect in terms of what they're seeing. And I, the main thing I would say is enjoy what you see. Don't worry too much about what you don't see. You know, if, if you get too upset about, you know, that one warbler or sparrow or rail that's not appearing for the group, then then it's like you're sort of predetermining the failure of the walk, you know, instead celebrate the common bird or or, you know, some bird that's really showing well for you. Uh, celebrate that. That's what we're all out there to, is to enjoy nature. So th th those would be my tips, I guess. 
So we, we had talked a little bit before this. Uh, you, you've been to Panama recently. Are there any sort of practical expressions of these sort of tips that you've you've given us uh, and how you kind of put them into play on this recent trip? Yeah, well, and it was an interesting trip because it was, it, you know, th- this was a trip to try out the new Harpia Zeiss scope, which is an incredible mm-hmm. new product from Zeiss. Uh, beautiful, beautiful telescope, goes up to 70 power, focuses down to something like 25 feet. And it does great in the low light there, which is, you know, they wanted to yeah. test it in Panama for yeah. a couple reasons. Very, very low light. And also uh, because the namesake bird, the Harpy Eagle, is there we were going for. So, you know, this was a trip to, for, as a product launch, but it was also a group full of really experienced media folks. You know, these are these are professional birders, uh, unlike most of my trips. Laura, Laura Kammermeyer was down there, Yes, right? Laura was there. Yeah, That's right. we, she was our first interview on this uh, yep. on podcast. <laughs> yeah, that, and that was my first time getting to work with her, and she was super. Uh, it was, yeah, she's great. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, there was representatives from all over the world. About six different countries were represented, at least on that trip. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a little, you know, in in some ways, it was more demanding because I'm 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 talking to experts here. Ta- I'm I'm trying to teach people that are really really very expert. And you know, of course, we get plenty of expert people on our trips all the time. But this was a trip, you know, chock a block experts. <laughs> yeah. And I really didn't try to do much different with my approach. I just tried to make sure I was as clear as possible uh, when it came to instructions. I tried to provide context as much as possible for every sighting. Yeah, people love that. Yes. And, and you know, some sometimes, you know, you see something and you just move on to the next bird. And by the end of the day, you have a list of birds and nobody really feels like they've learned much about it. You know, in some ways, that was the strength of this trip in Panama was that these people were so experienced. We could take time. With different subjects and uh, and really sort of dissect what we were seeing, um, you know, we saw we saw some really cool stuff. Uh, yeah, some some things I'd never seen before. And, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, Panama's really uh, coming on. You know, they it's it's remarkable what they've done down there as far as an ecotourism industry. Uh, what they built, it's, they're it really is really a, a powerhouse now. <laughs> it, it is the I mean the for the size of it, I think I'm trying to think it's like the size of it West Virginia or something like oh, that, yeah. and yeah. they've got almost a thousand species packed in there. You can see a lot of birds in a week or two in Panama, and some of them are, a lot of them are really snazzy birds too. And now, with the network of lodges they have there, and the network of local guides and 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 foreign guides too that really complement each other, it, it's a pretty great experience you can have down there. You you work for Rock Jumper, which is one of these sort of big you know, multinational tour companies. How do you work with these local local guides? Um, how do you build those relationships, and how do you use those people? Right. Yeah. Well, Rock Jumper has a very strong history of of always tr- working with local guides. We always send a Rock Jumper guide, but we always have a local guide, and and that just helps in so many ways. I mean, very often our Rock Jumper guide just has a, a very precise sense of what clients wants and needs are um, that would be difficult for s- some local guides. Not not all of them, certainly, but by sending a, an experienced rock jumper guide on all of our trip, we can ensure that the experience is just so, and it is a typical rock jumper experience. You know, where while using local guides, we learn so much about the culture. They have new sites for new birds all the time. And sometimes rock jumper guides will remember, you know, through their years of experience, will remember old sites. So you put all this knowledge together and it really is a complete experience between the two. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, it's something we're proud of. I did trips to the Galapagos for 10 years and in Argentina for that many years as well. 
and you really look forward to going back each year, seeing your friends, catching up, seeing what's going on, having a couple beers, you know, and just catching up. You make friends in these places. And, and you know, when I, I, I don't guide as much as I used to, when you stop going to these places, you, it's like a piece of your heart is breaking. But, uh, I mean, working with the locals is, you know, it's, it's important for our product and it's, it's important for them. It, it's, it dovetails perfectly. And it's something we believe in strongly, you know, supporting local economies, supporting e ecotourism in regional and local areas. You know, we need that for our business to thrive as well. Uh, and we and we need it, you know, most of all for the birds to thrive. Uh, so those are, you know, we've been working on a variety of partnerships for years in local areas. We support a bunch of different NGOs that have guides and we try to employ them just for, for all those reasons. Thanks, George. George Armistead is with Rock Jumper Worldwide. Birding Tours, the ABA's partner for a Tanzania Safari in 2018. There are still spots available for that if you are interested. I think, are, are you going to be a part of that, George? Yes. Yeah, looking very much. Super. Looking forward to it very much uh, with Jeff and Liz and Adam and a whole bunch of other Rock Jumper folks. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, so go birding with George. Uh, you can get more information uh, about that at events.aba.org and also at rockjumperbirding.com. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, man. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Well, wonderful to talk to you, and we'll be in touch soon. In the last part of the show today, the new duck stamp. Uh, most birders are, are well aware of the duck stamp, the, the migratory bird hunting and conservation stamp. It's a hugely important tool for protecting bird habitat, primarily wetland habitat across the country. It's a great service. An absurdly high percentage of the funds raised go to habitat purchases. It's essentially an admission ticket to a bunch of wonderfully productive refuges for birding. Uh, there's definitely an argument to be had as to whether birders should be purchasing this stamp primarily aimed at hunters, consumptive users of the refuge, but that is, that is not the argument I'm going to discuss today. That is a big one. That deserves a serious and sober consideration. My concerns are much more frivolous. This past week, the winner of the competition to choose the art which will adorn next year's duck stamp was announced. In case you aren't aware of how this works, the judges choose four or five species of North American waterfowl every year, and the artist will choose one to depict, and they all go into this contest that is really competitive with all sorts of intrigue that these sorts of things engender. And this year, the winner was Bob Houtman of Minnesota. This was his third time winning. He has two brothers who have also won five times a piece. So Bob is a bit of a slacker in that family, evidently. The whole Houtman dynasty thing is a whole other controversial issue going on here. Also something I'm not going to touch. Uh, so the choices for this year were Mallard, Gadwall, Blueing Teal, Cinnamon Teal, and Harlequin Duck. I think you can guess what the final choice was. It was Mallard. Boring, old, mallard now i don't want to come off as as elitist here um mallard is a handsome duck can't deny it those wild and wary birds you can find at wildlife refuges i mean there's something about the familiarity of those manky park birds that prevents me from fully getting on board uh I, you know i'm only human there's a reason mallard and not say you know northern pintail is the definitive duck in the minds of most people but oh, it's just so pedestrian and perhaps the matter is made slightly worse by the fact that this year's duck stamp, the one that is currently out, the subject is Canada goose. So, so two years in a row, the duck stamp, the single most important waterfowl-related image on the continent, uh, say perhaps that annoying Affleck duck, are two of the most common reed-boring subjects among the 50-plus species of breeding waterfowl in North America. So I guess I would ask, what 
is the point of the duck stamp competition itself? Uh, is it to promote great wildlife art, by which I would question whether that is being served by a piece of art that, while technically very beautiful, is sort of of a piece of any other duck art in a hunting lodge? Mallard is a common subject, as you'd expect. Is it to raise awareness of the incredible waterfowl diversity in North America? You know, mallard is found throughout the Northern Hemisphere, even more commonly in parks. Wouldn't say harlequin duck be a better choice there. Uh, native only to North America, super beautiful, desirable trophy for both birders and hunters, for that matter. And truthfully, the judges can, can only judge what they have in front of them. And, and what they had were a lot of mallards and fewer other species. But still, second and third place, cinnamon and blue teal. Nice paintings, too, and arguably the novelty of the subject might have pushed them past mallard. I'm, I'm not a judge. I don't know. I can't speak to what their criteria are. And maybe I'm just bitter that Harlequin Duck didn't win. Who among us can deny the siren song of the Harlequin Duck, which is really sort of a resonant peep for that matter. Uh, I think it would have been a really great subject for next year's stamp, a testament to waterfowl diversity, a reminder of the different types of habitats that the duck stamp money protects. As it is, I wouldn't begrudge any birder who modifies their stamp next year and maybe throws in some some darker plumage with a sharpie, mucks up the head, makes it look like a mallard black duck hybrid. Now that's an interesting bird. A reminder, you can still purchase your duck stamps and you can do it through the ABA at aba.org stamp. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization with a mission to represent North America's birding community and support birders through publications, workshops, events, and networks. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources we provide to the birding community, please consider joining us. We'd love to have you as a member. You can get more information at aba.org join. Special thanks to Benjamin Winters of Corpus Christi, Texas, Cindy Boyd of Gainesville, Florida, Hank Elliott of Sun City West, Arizona, and Peter Binstock of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They all joined the ABA this month and cited this podcast as a reason. Thanks so much and welcome to the ABA. If you like this show, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. We appreciate the feedback and it helps us to make this a better production and helps people find us. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. We are on the internets at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the American Bass Anglers, by all accounts a competitive fishing organization or governing body or something. The most I could gather from their website is that they are all practitioners of the hold the fish way out in front of you in photos pose, which must be a really effective way to lure new members. They almost hooked me. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.